Okay, we're in the Gospel of Mark. Yes. Let me start here. Last week, Grace and I got on a jet plane, and we went to the city of Los Angeles. We spent two days out there, six and a half hour flight, three time zones, read a book, watched the movie, finally arrived on the West Coast. I was there representing you guys and the work that we are doing together and seeking to be a church that does really well in our time and space just north of Boston in the years that Jesus gives to us. Specifically, they asked me to do a talk on contextualization, and I did that to some church planners who were seeking to do that well in some other contexts. Now, the conference was in downtown L.A., but we didn't stay in downtown L.A., We stayed in this other part of the city, 12 miles west of downtown, known as Beverly Hills. A student that I had taught in high school is now a reservations manager for Mr. C's Hollywood Boutique Hotel in Beverly Hills. And whenever you can stay at a hotel like that for the same price as a hotel room at the Red Roof Inn, you do that out of love for your wife. And so that's what we did, and we had a delightful time together. But I will say this, Beverly Hills was an interesting place to walk around in. This hotel was at the bottom of Rodeo Drive. You could see the hills of Beverly and Hollywood and the Hollywood sign from our um, patio there. We were right in the hearts of all of this glitz and glamour, and so no matter where we walked, Everyone we passed on the street was put together like the paparazzi was about to jump out from behind a tree and snap their picture and post it to the world. Perfect outfits, snazzy sunglasses, these chic hairdos that I had not been exposed to before. Do you know that it's cool now to wear a watch that's wide, wide band watches? Am I late on that? Because every dude had this, his hand out like this showing off his wide Wideband watch, suntan skin. They had this walk down, you know, the one where your chin's nice and high and you're just too sophisticated and busy to talk to the, the peasants on the street with you. Luxury automobiles only. We kept texting pictures to my sons of these cars on the street. It felt like you were walking through the pages of a fashion magazine and I was like, I'm just trying to go get some breakfast. That's all I'm trying to do here. Everybody was dolled up right, Hollywood style. I need you to envision Grace and I walking down this street together. So here you have Grace, and she looked great the day that we were there. She's got her exotic Italian skin and her long, dark hair. She had on this silk scarf and these jeans with a pattern on them, and she had her sunglasses tucked right into her hair. She just fit right in. She's beautiful. I don't know if her chin was up when we were walking, but she was there. Then you had me on this side. And I am in this one pair of jeans that you see me wear every time that I preach. And my receded hairline, that's finished. And five o'clock shadow from the six and a half hour o'clock flight, plus my rosacea, which is starting to form a little bit of acne. Plus, if I smile big, you'll see that I have a chip in this tooth right here. Thank goodness my mother had just splurged on some new kicks for Christmas for me. Or I would have been in serious trouble, but I will say it like this. I just, I just did not fit the L.A. scene that day. 
Now imagine if the paparazzi had been out and they would have got their camera out and they would have looked at Grace and they would have said what? Girl, this is embarrassing. Why are you with this guy? Why are you identifying yourself with him? He doesn't fit any of the sophisticated, accomplished, stylish, important things that that we value here. The man drives a Ford Taurus. You could do better. You should be ashamed to walk down Rodeo Drive with that man. Okay, I need you to feel that today because this is where our text is taking us. This is where your life is taking you. That anyone who chooses to identify with, to walk with, to follow, to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth is going to have to deal with that same exact thing right there. This world is going to look at you and say, why are you with that guy? Come on. You should be ashamed to identify with him and his words in our day. That is going to happen to you. And the question that I'm dealing with, with your soul this morning is, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the shame that comes unavoidably, necessarily, in confessing and loving and obeying and following Jesus. What do we do with the shame? Okay, Matt has read the text. I'm just going to give you two verses before I pray that this sermon is going to be anchored around. This is the first one. This is the big idea that Jesus gave us. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he gave some clauses that supported that, and here's the one we're going to deal with today. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Okay, let's pray. Father, thanks for bringing us to this place. Your mercy here is just, it's unspeakable that you've given us an opportunity to be a part of your people and to sit under your word and to have our days shaped now by these eternal truths that will shape us forever. Would you set the hearts of of all of us on you and on today and on tomorrow, all at the same time together. I pray that you do that and do it by your spirit. Amen. Okay, so we're preaching through Mark's gospel together. We're spending three weeks here in this eighth chapter because in a huge way, this is like the center of this story. This is the hinge that the gospel swings on. Finally, his disciples came to see that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David. They finally saw it. And then Jesus said, yes, this is who I am. And now let me clue you in on what this is actually going to mean. And he stunned them because he looked at them and he said, I am the Messiah, and that is not going to mean victory. That is going to mean suffering. That is not going to mean strength. It's going to mean weakness. That's not even going to mean life. 
it's going to mean death. And that is not going to mean glory. It's going to mean shame. How do they respond as soon as they hear those words? They call a time out. They pull Jesus over to the side and they say, no, 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 no. That can't be the story. And Jesus says, no, it must be the story. And then he calls the disciples and the crowds, everybody together, and he says something just as troubling to them. He says, the rhythm of weakness, suffering, death, and shame is not just about to become my story. That needs to be your story as well. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then he gives some backup to that statement and he adds some flesh to what it's going to mean to take up your cross and follow this Jesus. And here it is. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. All right, let's work slowly through this verse together this morning. The first thing is this. Built into that saying is the reality, is the anticipation, is the given that if holy people who love Jesus and his gospel find themselves living in an adulterous, sinful generation, shame will be a part of the deal of following Jesus right there. To follow Jesus in a culture like that is to incur shame. You can't get away from it. Following Jesus and receiving shame, they go together. Now this was certainly true for the disciples in this day. Remember, with these texts, we start with them before we move to us. They had attached themselves to Jesus of Nazareth, and there was a lot to be embarrassed about to do that as far as their culture was concerned. Remember who Jesus was. Jesus was the boy who grew up with everyone knowing his dad, Joseph, not really his dad. Mary was, was pregnant before that wedding. And as far as their culture was concerned, that was shameful. Joseph and Mary and Jesus were from Nazareth. I don't know how to get this word to trigger rightly in your mind. I'm trying. We did a little bit of this at Christmas. It is hard for us to express how shameful Nazareth was in those days. When Nathaniel sees Jesus and they say he's the Messiah, he says, no, nothing good can come from Nazareth. If you were from Rome or Athens, you looked down on Jerusalem and the Jews. If you were from Jerusalem in Judea in the south, you looked down on Galilee in the north. And if you were in Galilee, you all looked down on Nazareth. And if you were from Nazareth, there was nobody for you to look down on. That was, that was it. This would be like showing up at a Harvard alumni luncheon on Beacon Hill and everyone holding their cocktail glasses, and you roll in with a couple of plumbers from Chelsea who went to the Vogue. Do you feel that? The way that they would look at you, right or wrong, 
That's the feeling that came to Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus was a teacher, but he wasn't properly trained, was he? No. They love to say who they were trained under. Paul will later, in defending himself, say, I was trained under Gamaliel. But Jesus was trained under no one. He does not have that calligraphy thing framed on his wall. Did not go to the right schools. You'll hear this in the gospel. Where did this man get these things? He is unschooled. Jesus also made a habit of doing things that were embarrassing and shameful in his culture. He ate with sinners. That was shameful. He broke with the Pharisees' tradition. Shameful. He touched lepers. That is shameful. He let a prostitute wash his feet with her hair. That People would have recoiled that he let her physically touch him in that way. Over and over and over again, this Jesus from this Nazareth, who was unschooled, did stuff that were just shameful behavior. And of course, you guys know that none of this even begins to touch the nature of the shame that attended his death. Jesus was abandoned by his friends. Alone, he was tried. How embarrassing is that? He was accused of blasphemy, claiming to be God. Just ridiculous, shameful. He was beaten with rods. He was ridiculed and taunted by the soldiers, right? They put the robe on him and said, oh, you're the king of the Jews. And then they punched him and ripped the hair out of his beard. He was spit on. He was scourged. He was nailed to a cross. He was tortured in public. I know we miss this sometimes. We think that Jesus' cross like, got dropped behind a wall somewhere and there was no one there. That's not how this went down, you guys. Where Jesus was crucified was the equivalent of downtown crossing or Kenmore Square after a Red Sox game or Christmas time at the mall. Everyone was walking by this. This is why they had to put the sign up in three different languages. Everyone was there to see this stripped, naked, shamed, crucified Jewish wannabe. People hollered in his face when he was on the cross. Come on, big guy. You saved others. Now you can't even save yourself. The world has never seen a more shameful, embarrassing, ridiculous sight than the Son of God hanging on a tree. Okay, now what is the natural response if you are connected to Jesus and you see all of this shame being heaped on him? What is the temptation that comes right there? It's to do what? It's to disappear. It's to run away. It's to disassociate yourself with that man and that shame and that embarrassment. To do whatever you can to avoid having any of that shame find its way unto you. In other words, you are tempted big time to be ashamed of Jesus and to do whatever you can to avoid the shame. You know this feeling, right? You ever been with your dad and he's just dressed crazy and you just don't want to walk on the same side of the street? She's like, that was yesterday. 
Have you ever played ball with your cousins and they roll into town at your court and they don't know what they're doing and you're just like, hamstring, man, I got to go. I can't do this. Have you ever had your mom roll into college with you freshman year on the dorm, hugging and kissing you and calling you by your childhood name? I am not with her right there. You feel that? Slide to the left. This is the temptation that will come to you for associating, identifying with Jesus of Nazareth. But here's the problem. This is not how Jesus responded to his shame. He did not avoid the embarrassment and the ridicule of being the Christ, of obeying the Father, of doing what it took to save you from your sin. He didn't deflect it or maneuver around it. He did something else. I want us to see this in Scripture. What did he do with the shame that was heaped on him? Hebrews 12 has this beautiful phrase. I want you to hear it this morning. He says, let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, and here it is, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, did you hear that in there? Jesus did not avoid or dance around or trying to deflect the shame. The text says that Jesus despised the shame. For the joy that was set before him, he despised it. Okay, what, what, what does that mean? He, he responded by just despising the shame. I think it means that when this shame began to threaten his heart as it would any man, he was a man, he looked that shame in the eye and he said, I despise you. I will not yield to you. You are not going to move me. I will not give you any satisfaction. You can do what you want with my name, my comfort, my reputation, my body in the short run, but I'm not giving in. You can give me your best, most awful shot. I'm not moving. This is how Jesus responded to the shame that attended his life and his death. And how was he able to get there and to be like that and just endure it and despise it? It was for the joy that was set before him. Can you feel where his eyes were looking? They were looking not to the current shame, but to this future joy and glory. See, in the death of Christ, shame was stripping away all of his earthly supports. We can go down the list. His friends were gone with this shameful abandoning that he had to endure. His reputation was finished with this shaming slander that came over and over again in his last days. His decency, you guys, was taken away from him in this shameful nakedness. His comfort gave way to this shaming persecution. It was like all of his present supports were being shipped, stripped away in this shameful persecution that he had to endure. How could he not give in to that shame and just say, enough, I want out of it. It was because his heart was not set on the supports of the present, but his heart was set on this joy that was set before him 
of this future when he would sit at the right hand of the throne of God. I'll say it like this. Jesus knew that his shame was a means to an end of glory. These two things are tied together in the gospel of Jesus Christ, maybe made most clear in Revelation 5, the stuff that you guys read to open your liturgy this morning. I want to show you here how shame does not mean there is no glory, that shame is connected with glory in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and why we need to be right there together. So did you hear that scripture to open? It was John's vision of this day, the day when Jesus would be seated at the right hand of the Father, the day when he would come in the glory of his angels, the day when heaven and earth are finally reunited and this whole thing is made back as one again and King Jesus reigns forever. And in his vision, John sees one of these mighty angels and he's holding this scroll that nobody anywhere can open it. We read that they looked in the heavens and on the earth and below the earth. That means everywhere. And there wasn't anyone that could open this scroll. And John just starts to weep and cry like a Ravens fan later on today. He's just, oh, he's broken. And all of a sudden, one of the elders steps up and says, John, stop crying. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. And so John wipes his eyes of his tears, and he and all of heaven, they look up to behold this lion of the tribe of Judah, this root of King David, the conquering one, worthy to open the scroll. And when John looks up, what are you expecting John to see? What are you expecting him to see right now? I read this text and I'm expecting to see Gladiator, just with that tattoo scratched right off his arm, Braveheart, Leonidas, maybe Chuck Norris character, The Rock, <laughs> smell what he's cooking. I'm expecting to see somebody whose shoulders go like this for a while before they bend down here. Some kind of conquering Paparazzi would love this picture. It, we're about to see a superhero in all of his strength and glory. But that's not what you get in the gospel. That's not what you get in heaven. That's not the story. Here's what John says. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Okay, you, got, you cannot miss this. The all-glorious, all-powerful, conquering king is Jesus like this with his wounds showing. It's Jesus revealing the marks of his weakness. It's Jesus with his shame on full display. Only what has happened here, you guys? These things that were once so shameful have now become the grounds 
of His glory. You, this is what we will sing, the shamed one, the crucified one, the weak one, the wounded one, the naked one, the one that was like a pathetic lamb led to the slaughter. You are worthy to open the scroll. Worthy are you to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Please tell me you see what's happened there. Shame has given way to glory. Weakness has given way to strength. Death has given way to life. Sorrow has been swallowed up in eternal, non-ending joy. One leads to the other. Do you see now why Jesus' words in Mark 8 are so necessary, so powerful, so important? If those disciples refused to identify with this shameful Christ, if they were not willing to go bear witness to the world about this gospel of a crucified, buried, risen Savior, of a bloody cross and an empty tomb, foolishness in the ears of Jews and Gentiles, if they were not willing to endure the shame that came with being labeled apostles of Jesus Christ, if they were not willing to take that shame, then they would have no part in His glory. If you are not willing to take the shame, if you are ashamed of me and my words, you have no part in my glory when I come. Either you identify now with the shameful one or you don't inherit the life, the salvation that I'm holding out for you. Okay, that was their decision. In that day, we see what decision they make when Jesus appears to them risen from the dead, 11 of the boldest dudes imaginable going to their death unashamed about the cross and the empty tomb. This is also a decision that will be placed before you, me, every day of our lives, and us as a church and a church-planting church. We too, like those first disciples, live in and among a sinful and adulterous generation. You feel this just driving to church here, right? Are we going to be ashamed of Jesus and his gospel? Are we going to try and sidestep identifying with him and the elements of his gospel that our cities and our culture thinks are a shame? Or are we going to humbly but boldly despise the shame and just say, okay, all right, you want to laugh at us, you want to joke about us, you want to shake your head at us, you want to write editorials about us, you want Seven Mile Road to become the end of a lot of bad jokes, fine. But we're with Jesus. We're not moving. We need to get our hearts there as a church. We have to. And it's going to be very, very hard. One of the great sins of the American church in general right now is that we are ashamed of Jesus and his words. It's true. It's totally true. We're ashamed. 
rather than despise the shame of American culture. It so affects us. We so would do anything to avoid it. We have distanced ourselves from Jesus and his words. When I was out in L.A., they asked me to speak on contextualization. That's this idea that in one hand we have this historic, unchanging, true, orthodox gospel. Paul says it like this, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one. And yet we are called to see this one gospel embedded in, take root in, be contextualized to, redeem and transform all the different people groups and contexts of this world. The problem is this, holding tightly to the unchanging gospel in one hand and holding tightly to the ever-moving target of people, groups, and culture and context in the other means that we are always in tension, always being pulled hard to fade in one direction or the other. And one way that we can fall over is here, over-contextualization is what I, I said to these guys, to care so much about what our context thinks, to be so terrified that they will make fun of us or not approve of us, that we take this gospel, we change it, and we amend it, and we edit it, and we truncate it, and we smooth out the edges, all the stuff that our context doesn't really like. And to do that, according to this text, gets things exactly backwards. Instead of that kind of compromise and cowardice, our call as Jesus' church is always to hold fast to Jesus and his words and to do it at the very places where our context would heap the most scorn and shame on us. That, that's the call, to not be ashamed at the places where our culture would pour out the shame. Now, that point changes depending on your context, and so our challenge is to say, where is it that we need to stand unashamed? I'll give you an example of this. In a few weeks, I'm not sure how many weeks from now, but I'm going to do some preaching to you guys on hell, because Jesus talks about it, he's fierce about it, and we love Jesus and his word, so we're going to do that together. So naturally, I'm starting to prep to do that well with you guys. It's very interesting, because in American culture... It is shameful to still teach that God is holy and that sin is serious and that the only means for dealing with our sin and God's righteous wrath is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on a cross and that if God has a hell where justice rolls forever, it is a good thing. To say those words out loud in our day to a self-righteous, sentimental, universalistic culture, they will say what? Shame on you. How could you still identify with that teaching of Jesus and those words of his? This is embarrassing. Do you know what city you're in and what year it is? And so what do we American churches do? Right away, 
we bail, we backtrack, we slide away from any of that shame. We don't want to be called mean names, and we are ashamed of Jesus and his gospel on that point. But I was listening to a pastor from a different culture, and it was fascinating because he said, in my culture, it's just the opposite. My family and my people group, they have no problem with hell at all. Totally fine with it. They have a major problem with mercy. Huge problem. They get why God would punish rebellious, wicked, selfish sinners in his perfect justice. No problem. They don't get why God would be merciful and take on himself the sins of his people. Preach that gospel of God in his infinite mercy being this way, and do you know what they say to him in his culture? Shame on you. What are you, an American? That's what they say. How could you ever identify yourself with the kind of God who lets sinners walk free? What's the temptation for that pastor, for that church? It's to be ashamed of the depths of the mercy of God. And to be like, you're right, this, this, this Jesus gospel is just, it's too lenient, isn't it? Let me find a way to edit that out so that you'll accept me. So faithful despising of the shame as a church community is going to look different in different contexts. If we were in his context, we would have to say, look, you can shame me because I believe that God is merciful and abounding in love but I will not be ashamed of that gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not moving. And of course, in our day, we need to stand up and say, you can shame me because I believe that God is holy and that sin is serious and the cross is necessary, but I'm not going to be ashamed of Jesus' gospel on this point. Now, I would love if you guys in your soul care communities worked through some lists here and said, what are the places in our day when it would be easy for us to be ashamed, but we've got to hold fast to Jesus and his words? To be able to say to Jesus on that day, that that wasn't us. At every point where our culture heaped on the scorn and the shame, we tried to do like you. We stood fast. We didn't care about the shame. We were taking hold of eternal joy in you. So we cannot be ashamed that Jesus' cross was bloody. That's embarrassing in our day. We cannot be ashamed. We cannot be ashamed that the Father put forth the Son who went willingly to his death in our place for our sins. We cannot be ashamed of that truth. We cannot be ashamed that God declares all men and all women to be sinful and helpless in that sin. We cannot be ashamed that there is such a thing as absolutely true truth. That is embarrassing to say that sentence in our day. We've got to stand and not be ashamed. We cannot be ashamed of the existence of a hell where justice rolls eternally and is somehow a good thing because God declared it to be so. We cannot be ashamed that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope. 
the exclusive hope for sinners. We cannot be ashamed that Jesus loved his Bible and believed every word of it to be true. And we do too. That is so embarrassing on Commonwealth Avenue. We can't be ashamed. We cannot be ashamed that violence and vengeance are not going to be a part of gospeling this world. If your context is the Middle East and you say that, they will shame you. We can't be ashamed that it's the suffering servant who is our Christ. And most of all, we cannot be ashamed that we needed the Son of God to take on flesh, and to bleed and die in our place for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. It's because we so desperately need that gospel that we can despise all the shame that attends to it. I am not ashamed of the gospel because I need it. We need to be that kind of a church that revels in Jesus and his gospel and holds really fast to him and his teaching because there's this eternal glory and joy that we're headed for together. Okay, now that's us as a church. This goes for every single individual one of you as well. It does. There are going to be moments in your life, could be tomorrow, could be this week, might not be for a few months, but they will be there where you are going to have to choose. Will I be ashamed when someone says to me, what are you doing with that? Jesus, are you serious? Cruz, that's embarrassing. Will you be ashamed of the Son of God? Sophomore year of high school, walking between the buildings at Dom Savio in East Boston, Jeff Nelson looked me in the eye. He said, Matt, are you one of those born-again Christians? All the air was sucked out of the universe in that moment, right? You're a sophomore in high school. This is it. There I was. What's the immediate temptation of your heart? Well, I mean, kind of, sort of, if you want to use that phrase to describe it. To deflect, to dodge, to hedge, to change the subject, to sidestep the shame that comes with being attached and associated to Jesus. And that day... I went for it. I still know Jeff. I just looked him in the eye and I said, yes, that's what I am. If only that was the tenor of my life every day. 38-year-old Matt Cruz can learn a ton from that bold 16-year-old newly saved Matt Cruz. You know those commercials where the 38-year-old is talking to the 16-year-old saying, listen to me. I need that reversed. I need that 16-year-old me to talk to the 38-year-old me and say, listen to me. Don't you dare be ashamed of the Christ who died for you and who holds out for you eternal, never-ending, unspeakable, immeasurable joy because of who he was and what he did. Matt, there is life with the Lamb who was slain. Take the shame. Despise the shame. Don't be ashamed. Hold tightly now and step into eternity. On that day, Jesus will not have to be ashamed 
of you. He will welcome you into the glory that he purchased with his shame. We need our hearts to believe if we're going to get there. Faith is not something that happens in the past and then we take over. You know that, right? Your heart needs to continue to believe. This joy that is set before me is worth enduring the shame because I inherit Christ. I'm going to pray that God would give you that grace. Father, thanks for a Savior that was what he, we needed him to be. Not what we think would be sophisticated or strong or wise. He was what we needed him to be. Would you help us be a people who rejoice in that fact? We didn't need a conquering king with a sword. We needed a suffering servant on a cross, and that's what you gave us. And yet we will then be ashamed of it. Forgive us. Forgive us for our cowardice and our lack of faith. You were what you, we needed you to be, and, and, and we try to avoid being identified with you. Father, we are sorry. I pray that you would turn the heart of this congregation to be so bold, humble but bold, and say, it's right. I'm with Jesus, the, the one who stands as a lamb who was slain because all glory and power are his, and I want to inherit that life with him. Make that our story as people, as sons and daughters, men and women, and as a church. Let us be able to stand with Paul and say those words, I, will, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for us. Come and do this work in our hearts. I pray that you do it. Amen.